My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 177, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Isaiah 57 through 58, and Ezekiel 14 through 16. While the Bible contains, certainly, adult themes that may not be suitable for children, there's particular discretion advised for those that are sensitive to anything related to sexual violence in the story that we're reading today. The righteous perish, and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. But you come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Who are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. Indeed, they are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In view of all this, should I relent? You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Behind your doors and your doorposts, you have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you uncovered your bed. You climbed into it and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you love, and you looked with lust on their naked bodies. You went to Moloch with olive oil and increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away. You descended to the very realm of the dead. You wearied yourself by such going about, but you would not say it is hopeless." You found renewal of your strength, and so you did not faint. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me, and have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart? Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness and your works, and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away, but whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people, for this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger, yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near. Say it's to the Lord, and I will heal them. 
but the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion, and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right, and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions, and seem to eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you do not notice? Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to lose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and He will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fails. Your people rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words— then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Ezekiel chapter 14. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces, and then go to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture their hearts of the people of Israel, who have all deserted me for their idols. Therefore say to the people of Israel, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Repent. Turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. When any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing in Israel separate themselves from me and set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go up to a prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. 
I will set my face against them and make them an example and a byword. I will remove them from my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy, I, the Lord, have enticed that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. They will bear their guilt. The prophet will be as guilty as the one who consults him. Then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile themselves any more with all their sin. They will be my people, and I will be their God, declares the sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. If a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply, and send famine upon it, and kills people and their animals, even these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it. They could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. Or if I send wild beasts through that country, and they leave it childless, and it becomes desolate so that no one can pass through it because of the beast, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord. Even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved, but the land would be desolate. Or if I send a plague into the land and pour out my wrath on it through bloodshed, killing its people and their animals, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save neither son nor daughter. They would save only themselves by their righteousness. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments? sword and famine, and wild beast and plague, to kill its men and their animals. Yet there will be some survivors, sons and daughters, who will be brought out of it. They will come to you, and when you see their conduct and their actions, you will be consoled regarding the disaster I have brought on Jerusalem, every disaster I have brought on it. You will be consoled when you see their conduct and their actions, for you will know that I have done nothing in it without cause, declares the Sovereign Lord." The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, how is the wood of a vine different from that of a branch from any of the trees in the forest? Is wood ever taken from it maybe anything useful? Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? And after it is thrown on the fire as fuel and the fire burns both ends and chars the middle? Is it then useful for anything? If it was not useful for anything, when it was whole, how much less can it be made into something useful when the fire has burned it and it is charred? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, As I have given the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest as fuel for the fire, so will I treat the people living in Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. Although they have come out of the fire, the fire will yet consume them. And when I set my face against them, you will know that I am the Lord." I will make the land desolate because they have been unfaithful, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. I made you grow like a plant of the field, you grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. 
Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corners of my garments over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered clothes. Your food was honey, olive oil, and finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him, and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also, the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. That is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. And all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Woe, woe to you, declares the Sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. At every street corner, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your neighbors with large genitals, and aroused my anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory." I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians, too, because you were insatiable, and even after that, you were not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants, but even with you, were not satisfied. I am filled with fury against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. When you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute, when you built your mounds at every street corner and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. All prostitutes receive gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment, and none is given to you. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your lust and exposed your naked body and your promiscuity with your lovers, and because of all your detestable idols, and because you gave them your children's blood, 
Therefore, I'm going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them, and they will see you stark naked. I will sentence you to punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will deliver you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you stark naked. They will bring a mob against you, who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution, and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside, and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will be calm and no longer angry, because you did not remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with all these things. I will surely bring down your head. What you have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb about you. Like mother, like daughter, you are a true daughter of your mother who despised her husband and her children, and you are a true sister of your sisters who despises their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Your older sister was Samaria who lived in the north of you with her daughters, and your young sister who lived in the south of you with her daughters was Sodom. You not only followed their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways you soon became more depraved than they. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. You have done more detestable things than they, and have made your sister seem righteous by all these things you have done. Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters. Because your sins were more vile than theirs, they appear more righteous than you. So then, be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom, and her daughters, and of Samaria and her daughters, and your fortunes along with them, so that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you have done in giving them comfort. And your sisters Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters will return to what they were before, and you and your daughters will return to what you were before. You would not even mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered. Even so, you are now scorned by the daughters of Edom and all their neighbors and the daughters of the Philistines, all those around you who despise you. You will bear the consequence of your lewdness and your detestable practices, declares the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. 
Then when I make atonement for you for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. In Isaiah, we get the press forward and carry on message. I think we're going to need that as an underlying theme as we walk through the complexity of Ezekiel 14 through 16. But I want to spend most of our time on what probably seemed like the most intense and hardest to understand story in the Bible. So let's get into it. Where we left off was on looking at Ezekiel's oracle or announcement prophetically against counterfeit prophets and different prophetic types of abuse or misuse. And in chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, Ezekiel's giving this announcement against specifically prophetic abuse, particularly to the elders. We think that's the audience, according to Dr. Block's commentary, who brought their questions before the prophet Ezekiel. Something to note, Dr. Daniel Block has been very helpful for me. He writes the, a commentary on Ezekiel, and I reached out to Dr. Carmen Imes, who suggested him, and also Dr. Tim Mackey suggests Dr. Daniel Block. And I noted that the Bible Project is going to be having an Ezekiel course coming out in 2024 that you can already sign up for. So if you're really interested in that, this is one of those really hard chapters, and you can be the teacher of teachers and help others to understand this better. But Dr. Daniel Block offers a great commentary. Okay, so he describes the message here as being against synchronistic religious commitments. And what is that? Synchronistic religious commitments is the blending of beliefs or practices. Ooh, so like pseudo-truths. The heart idolatry seems to be at the center of it all. Perhaps the people longed for the very false gods and corruptive lives they had been torn from in Jerusalem, so missing what they knew. Unlike other polytheistic neighboring religions, because Israel is supposed to be monotheistic, so one god, well, they were largely before they were corrupt, right? But the polytheistic viewpoint is that their fates were determined by the wills of the gods who competed among themselves for mastery over earthly affairs, right? But here, Ezekiel is making it clear that Israelites have a responsibility in determining their fate. Yet, Dr. Block notes that the reader of scripture might recognize the author and audience's wrestle with the idea of deceit on the part of God. This struggle or idea may have emerged for you or some readers all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 2 through 6, where we talked about false prophets serving as a test of sincerity of Israelites' covenant commitment to Yahweh. Maybe it's like a chicken and egg debate, like can God deceive people or are they deceived and so he uses them? That's what I mean by chicken and egg debate. And maybe it's really hard to wrap our minds around God's nature as being omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, meaning he stands outside and within, he transcends time and space, he is all sovereign, yet we are reading over and over again from Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28 forward, that God gave us a portion of his power and authority, which is very different from what the other gods were doing. And that portion of power and authority may come in various shapes, forms, amounts, types, individually, collectively, as we're in groups, and at various times in our lives. But God is giving us influence, a place, a special relationship, and he's giving us the most control over our 
actions, and reactions. And he also knows us before we are born and after we die in the world as it is and what becomes of us in this story with no end because he transcends time. Yes, it's really quite mind-boggling and should be because we also have read his ways and thoughts are higher than ours. His wisdom, he is wisdom itself, and our understanding can never be as great as his. But our faith in who he is, his promises, his word, this story, that we can shema, hold tightly and allow to transform us. The prophet Jeremiah will struggle with this and we'll explore this more when we read Jeremiah. To give a brief spoiler alert, Dr. Block describes the thread. The theme is gullibility. In Hebrew, the word root is pith, P-T-H. So essentially, Dr. Block describes Yahweh answering insincerity with insincerity. Those who seek confirmation of their drifted or dislocated ways and reassurance or certainty of well-being, the avoidance of harm and difficulty are essentially being given the answer they want as they desire. In doing so, the truth is given, and without a heart change for a vision change, this will end in self-destruction because they're asking to believe a lie or whatever false imaginative thing that they want versus pursuing the truth and a personal relationship with Jesus. So judgment is inevitable because that leads to destruction, right? Then we move to the cost of treachery in chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. In chapters 12 to 15, we'll start verse 8, Dr. Block describes this next section as the four strikes of Yahweh's hand, probably in response to naysayers about the escalated exile of all the Israelites and the destruction of Jerusalem. They probably just didn't believe it was really going to happen. So, too many of Ezekiel's messages, there is this priestly and legal aspect to his style that is unique in the sense that other prophets did not come from the priestly preparative background. So the first accusation Ezekiel is giving to the peoples is sin against Yahweh, and the second is treachery, described as we've seen before in a visceral, personal way, infidelity. The result is a four-strike judgment described similarly in Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. We're destined for death, the sword, famine, and captivity. That was the plight of Jerusalem or the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Yet the desire of the Lord's heart is for repentance, right? Relationship is clear. This doesn't mean the accused will skip out on judgment. This is interesting. How many of us would repent to avoid punishment, but maybe struggle to repent if we knew the consequences of hardship was inevitable? That's something to think about. There are so many connections here to the Sodom and Gomorrah story where God was talking to Abraham And we are reminded that each person has a responsibility and that children cannot rely on their parents' faith and consequences will come, even if and when one or two righteous people are present. At the same time, hope and mercy are offered. Yes, my struggle and maybe yours is to fathom God's justice and righteousness. It continues, yet I do not require the understanding to have faith that God is immutably just and righteous. Even if I struggle to understand it, I don't struggle to have faith in it. Those are two things I hold in separate hands. Even if and when I don't understand, I still have faith in God and my relationship with Him.
Then, in chapter 15, we get this graphic metaphor on divine judgment. The fire of his fury will catch and consume. Dr. Mackey describes this as a parable or allegory of Israel as a burned, useless stick in Ezekiel's description of judgment against Israel. Then, in chapter 16, yikes, that was even more gruesome for me than the end of Judges, where we read about the Levite. Remember, those Levites were priests or protectors of priests, and he had this unfaithful pilgesh, which is translated in English to concubine, who he was pursuing to bring home. So his pilgesh. And remember, concubines were not like a wife, but more like a sex partner who also helped with progeny or having more children, and that helped with the household economic growth. So her work around the house or for the business and having future children. That's what a concubine was. So a lot of layers of disorder when we compare this description of relationship to what God ordered in Genesis 2 and what we know Levites are supposed to be doing. Then we read about their stay in a city and the story seems to read more like the Sodom and Gomorrah story, except in Judges, there isn't a godly intervention to protect Lot's daughters. In this story, the concubine, who is pushed out by her very own, in air quotes, husband or protector, the Levite, and she is used and killed. Then the Levite cuts her into pieces and sends her away to the tribes of Israel to invoke revenge on the tribes, a tribe of Benjamin. And we read about the cycles of civil tribal violence that ended in so much brutality and aggression within and from God's people. Here we read the longest literary unit in Ezekiel, and to me, it sounds similar-ish. The God Yahweh seems to be using this story to both describe what Israel is being accused of and the judgment that will befall them. Dr. Block describes Ezekiel's parable and allegory as drawing from the classical illustration in Hosea of his unfaithful wife, Gomer. And the use of the marriage metaphor isn't foreign to us. We've been reading it. And as a modern reader and a woman, I have to admit, I find it so striking and odd at the use of a woman being unfaithful in marriage. Not the marriage metaphor or the unfaithfulness in marriage metaphor. It just strikes me as so odd when statistics like the General Society survey from the Institute of Family Studies reports that more men than women self-report cheating in marriage. But also interesting is that only 15 to 20% of married couples report cheating at all, and that men are actually more likely to stay with an unfaithful wife, 66%, than a wife with an unfaithful man, 44%. Nevertheless, there is something so visceral to this idea of betrayal, particularly infidelity that I think it still makes for a good metaphor regardless of time. Also note, the story is not about a specific woman. This story is about God's people, the Israelites who have been unfaithful to him. So although it's talking about a woman, kind of like we've seen throughout the Hebrew language, places are often referred to as a woman or her, kind of like in other times, you know, ships are referred to as her and things like that. So even though it's a metaphor and there's parable and allegory, we have to separate the idea of a real specific woman in this case versus Ezekiel is talking to and describing the story is about 
Israel. So Ezekiel is not emphasizing God carrying the covenant for both parties or that his people are described as special treasure, holy people, or kingdom of priests. No, he is being the honest critic, logically so, and stating that Israel deserves the fury of Yahweh's wrath. Dr. Block describes the use of shocking imagery and rare vocabulary. Israel is being described as a harlot, and Jerusalem is an unrestrained, nymphomaniacal adventure. Yet this story isn't using adultery as much as prostitution. And there's a difference between adultery and prostitution in the story. There's this emphasis on the habitual practice and the desire for personal gain, the involvement of multiple partners, and these illicit acts. The other part emphasized in the story is the innocent young vulnerable girl who became a woman at the onset of this story, who God graciously elevated to the status of queen, and then chose, she chose, in this story, which is Israel, to become a prostitute. Now remember, don't forget, Israel's what we're talking about in the parable and allegorical terms. While hard to digest, it's telling the story of God creating us, calling us, just because he loves us without merit to be his treasured possessions, his holy people, his kingdom of priests, in his kingdom with no end, only to choose to eat from the tree of knowledge over and over again. Don't worry, I say sarcastically, there will be other prophets like Jeremiah who will also vividly use imagery of a lustful female to tell the tale of Israel. But before you and I get too upset about what seems to be the patterned out use of women as the unfaithful, remember the story of David, Solomon, and Abraham. Their unfaithfulness did not go unnoticed or without a biblical lesson, too. As Dr. Block describes, the semi-pornographic style of rhetoric produced a strong emotional response, both then and now. I will note there are troubling or objectionable aspects to this choice of parable or allegory in the metaphor of marriage. Like Dr. Block, my first concern is the irreproachable positive language of the male case and the obscenely negative light of the female in the symbol making. Second, the prophet seems to depict female sexuality as an object of possession and in control of the male, suggesting that violence can be a means of healing a broken relationship, which we know is not true. And third, to involve Yahweh in an image of sexual violence somehow justifies and sanctions abuse by human males who are angry at women where God is proving his masculinity and superiority through violent retaliation. That's also not true, and so we get these distillations, these dislocations if we're not careful and we're focusing on or reading into the uses of parable and allegory in the metaphor and not what the message, what it's talking about. So to believe these things would be to forget that this was a parable with the use of allegory in the metaphor of marriage. While why Ezekiel chose to cast Yahweh in an abusive husband role who humiliates his wife and encourages violence is most likely for a symbol designed to shock their stony hearts, as Dr. Block states. And again, this is not metaphysically real in the sense that Israel is not a physical woman and God is not her physical husband. Israel is a people who were created and cared for by God, and he did raise them up, not on their merit, but for love and purpose. I just can't stress this enough, to bless the whole world through blessing them. And they did prostitute themselves in a way, 
giving their heart to other idols, which led to violence and injustice, unrighteousness, and that hard heart where evil prevails. And God is saying, enough is enough. No more. Evil cannot and will not endure. Where we read countless metaphors and we'll read more parables and allegory. In the end of chapter 16, we read this double ray of hope. God will not only redeem and restore Israel, described as the worst of the worst, but remember also Sodom, Samaria, and her daughters. Dr. Block describes this as the bad good news, the qualification, the restoration, the understanding. The chapter ends with good, good news. As Dr. Block characterizes, you will know that I am Yahweh. He is making a new way, grace, and yet still keeping the eternal covenant given to Abraham. It's a wild ride with shocking imagery, but I think it ends with this awestruck sense of the extent, the width, the depth of God's grace. He's not only going to save Jerusalem, Israel, he's going to save the northern kingdom, which is referred to in Samaria, Sodom, which is probably referring to the Canaanites or part of Israel that was drifted way long ago in the story. God is good, and we have to rely on that. Even when some of the metaphors to us seem so confusing, we have to focus on who he is and the message that's being told. That's my encouragement for you. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.